Welcome to Voices of Santa Clara. Having a good idea doesn't get you done. And if we'd hit those, there would have been an explosion. We would have died, obviously. Scholarship should cultivate the virtues. Worry more about, am I searching for what I should be doing next in the world? Welcome to the Voices of Santa Clara podcast. I'm your host, Gavin Cosgrave, and today I'm delighted to be talking with Professor Bob Finocchio. I took the introduction to business class at Santa Clara from Finocchio last fall during my first quarter, and Professor Finocchio remains one of my favorite uh, professors to this day. I'll always remember how during the last week of class on Monday, he told the story about his time as CEO of Informix, which you'll hear about on this podcast. It's cool story. On Wednesday, his son, who is the CEO and founder of the sports media company Bleacher Report, came in and spoke, and that really inspired me. And on Friday, he gave an amazing lecture wrapping up the class, and that was and probably still is the best week of class I've ever had. And so I was super excited to sit down and catch up and chat with Professor Finocchio about how he got started in Silicon Valley and how he stays involved to this day. Since 2000, Finocchio has taught at Santa Clara and served on the boards of well over a dozen companies. And in this interview, he shares about some of the decisions and opportunities that brought him success in the business world, as well as some reflections about the best investments of time and energy that he's made. I've got lots of big things planned for 2018. So make sure to hit that subscribe button on the podcast app so that you can stay updated on all the new episodes coming out, which will start in a couple weeks. So now please enjoy this conversation with Bob Finocchio. So I'd love to start out by asking if there are any uh, moments or experiences from your childhood before college that really made an impact on you um, and what you wanted to do with your future. Yes. So I grew up in a um, large Italian family. I'm the oldest of seven kids. My father worked for Bank of America and he got transferred about every two years, always in Northern California. But um, we moved around a lot. So when I started seventh grade, it was my seventh school. Um, so I was I got used to being uh, the new kid all the time. And um, my uh, it was great having a little bit of Italian culture in my life with um, you know grandparents and great grandparents that uh, remembered the old country. And uh, I learned a lot watching, my parents, my father, a businessman, I learned a lot about how he managed people and uh, managed his jobs and work. And I learned a lot from my mother, who running a very large, complex household on highly constrained resources, um, how she fed and clothed and got everybody to school and did big family dinners. She was very, very good at operations. <laughs> And actually, she ran the, the, the family's finances as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, that was a, a great environment to be in. Mm-hmm. For some of my uh, brothers and sisters, moving around a lot was a challenge mm-hmm. because it was hard to build longstanding relationships. And you had to establish yourself as, as a new person every time you showed up to some new town. Mm-hmm. But that turned out to be pretty helpful later on in life where you have more experiences like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you start college, when you start a new job, um, you're the new person as opposed mm-hmm. to if you 
grew up in one community and went to grammar school and high school with the same group of people, uh, the transition from from that to going to college is a big deal. Mm -hmm. And then you attended Santa Clara University and apparently something, so apparently you, you like something about it because you stuck around. Um, well, it's, it's kind of uh, <laughs> interesting. Um, Santa Clara was not my first choice. Mm -hmm. I really wanted to go to Stanford and I had good test scores and good grades and I thought it was a shoo-in to get in. However, I got what they called at the time a deferred acceptance, which said, yes, I could enter, but a year later because they didn't have enough housing. And part of the problem was we moved my senior year in high school, and I went from a private, all-boys, pretty rigorous school to a big public school, and I think they just translated my grades and they didn't know anything about this little school I went to in Salinas. So I, that perhaps disadvantaged me, and I did not want to wait a year before I started college. And I had applied to Santa Clara uh, basically as a safety school. Mm -hmm. uh, but after I got that note from Stanford that I was accepted but couldn't go this year, I said, screw you, I'm going to go to Santa Clara. And um, I've held a grudge against Stanford ever since. <laughs> but it turned out Santa Clara was an incredible place. Uh, had, I'm sure, a far better undergraduate experience mm -hmm. than I ever would have had at Stanford and built relationships that are very different from what I would have had at Stanford. And the school had a profound impact on my life. It was, um, and, and I think it was proven by, um, you know, the, the graduate work I did in terms of how well prepared I was. Mm -hmm. What were your career plans in college? I had no idea. Um, I started as undeclared arts and sciences. My advisor happened to be a French professor, so I signed up to be a French major. And then I decided after a while, mm, I'm not so, so sure about this. And I changed majors four or five times. I think I signed up for English, I signed up for math, signed up for theater arts, and then I took an econ class and said, wow, I really like this, so I changed to econ. Mm -hmm. And then I really fell in love with econ um, and chose that as my major, but I still had no no sense of what I would do the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. And as I got toward my senior year, I decided I wanted to pursue graduate work in economics. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, took all the, what, the GRE exam that applied to schools, and I ended up starting a doctoral program at uh, Claremont Graduate School. Mm -hmm. And at that point in time, I thought my career would be in higher education. But after a short time there, I realized I did not want to study graduate economics. Mm -hmm. And as a fallback, I had applied to, to business schools. And I had applied to Harvard Business School really just to see if I could get in. Mm -hmm. It was more an ego thing for me than any desire I had to be in business or study business. Mm -hmm. um, but I... I got in, and when I left the the econ program, I decided to go to Harvard. Hmm. Do you have any memories from that time at Harvard that uh, that you still remember that helped shape you in any way? Um, yes, um, it was a big cultural shock for me to show up there. I had never been to the East Coast. I had never met anybody who had ever gone to an Ivy League school. I 
was totally a fish out of water. I was convinced I was the least well-prepared person there. It was very intimidating. Um, the atmosphere there is sort of gladiator-like. You're in an arena every day in a classroom, and it's all cases, and it's Socratic, and you fight and argue with other students, and you win, you lose. You, um, it's very, very aggressive debate, and not for the faint of heart. Uh, and the first couple of weeks, I was convinced that I must have been admitted by mistake. And uh, But I didn't realize that everybody felt that way. Mm -hmm. But I had one experience. I got a note in my box. This is before email. Uh, to, to visit the admissions office that they had. They wanted, somebody wanted to see me about something. And I literally thought, oh, my God, they are going to tell me they accepted me by mistake and uh, send me home. Mm -hmm. But when I got there, uh, what they wanted me to do was sign a release because they wanted to use part of my essay that I'd written to get in in a in their application in their in their brochure about the business school. So it was just kind of the opposite of what I thought. And then as time went on, I realized how well prepared I was for for that school and did very very well. And that's not all. Um, it was a, an environment that's not for everybody, and, and I was probably uh, pretty brutal and sometimes not very sensitive to other people. I liked winning, um, so I played hardball a lot in class. Um, so that part was good and fun, but it's, um, it's not for everybody. Mm -hmm. And then how did you get involved in the uh, tech industry after graduate school? Well, I was uh, dumb luck as well. I wasn't even sure I wanted to be in business. I just, I always try to succeed at whatever I'm doing. So I tried to do very well at business school and I did. And I wanted to come back to California because I was kind of homesick and, and I had friends here. So I got a job at Bank of America where I had done summer intern stuff. And when I, I worked there part-time when I was in college, so I had a pre-existing relationship and I joined a group that was making loans to high-tech companies when Silicon Valley was just starting in 1977. And that was total dumb luck to be in the right place at the right time. This is when the Valley was perhaps the most exciting. The little group I was in uh, got exposed to Apple Computer and other really iconic startups. And after about a year doing that, I realized I don't want to be a banker. Um, I want to go mainstream. I want to not be an advisor to people doing things in Silicon Valley. I want to be one of the doers. Mm -hmm. So I was lucky enough that one of my clients was a an iconic uh, Silicon Valley startup called Rolm, R-O-L-M, mm -hmm. which was had invented computerized telephone systems and a few other things. And they were one of my clients at the bank, and they asked me to go to work for them, mm -hmm. uh, which I did. And that decision changed everything. That really got hmm. me into Silicon Valley. Hmm. And were there any moments uh, or times working at Rome that were really challenging, or where you learned something important that you would kind of you kind of needed in the rest of your career? Yeah, Rome was an extraordinary place. Um, it was founded by um, four Rice University graduates, um, two of whom got their PhDs at Stanford brilliant, brilliant engineers and business people and very, very good human beings. The best, it's the best place I've ever worked, um, probably ever, ever could have worked. 
and they hired me initially as working for the treasurer doing some finance stuff. But very quickly, they asked me to do things. I had no idea how to do them. Like one day they said, go buy this company. I didn't know how to go buy a company. They said, take a lawyer, get on the plane and go buy this company. So, okay. Um, and then a year into it, um, they said, do you want to buy a company in Colorado, buy a company in Colorado and then go there and be the finance guy at that company. Okay. And then a year later, um, someone running one of Rome's subsidiaries, which were sales and service, had died jogging at lunch. And this was a, a business that was headquartered in Detroit. And they said, do you want to go run this in Detroit? I didn't know anything about sales. I didn't know anything about service. Mm -hmm. uh, but they just kept giving me chances to do things mm -hmm. and betting on me, uh, even though my profile had nothing to do with what you needed to do to be successful in those jobs. Mm -hmm. But they just kept taking chances. And that's something I, I really learned from that. And I benefited from emulating that strategy with other people, just mm -hmm. taking aggressive chances with people that I, in, my, in my gut I knew had great potential. Mm -hmm. And just don't follow some preordained framework by the mm -hmm. HR department saying this person must be qualified for that. Mm -hmm. So throughout my time at Rome, they just kept giving me chances to do things that I had to learn on the job. Mm -hmm. Eventually, that company was bought by IBM. Mm -hmm. But when, when they bought it, I was running part of uh, Rome Salesforce. Hmm. Do you think that's any different today in terms of, do you think students coming out of college today need a, need a clearer idea? Or like, for example, if we had a student who wanted to um, maybe have like an executive role at a company, um, like what would that student need to do to get there? You know, conventional wisdom, most companies op don't operate the way Rome did. Um, they would, in essence, constrain their solution set to people that looked like the answer. Uh, we'll hire you if you already know how to do X. Mm -hmm. But, and you know, that works most of the time, but I, it's sometimes you miss a lot of potential greatness. Mm -hmm. So I think the advice for a student would be, you know, find people to work with who have very broad open minds whom you have a sense would be willing to take a chance with you mm -hmm. and ask for things sort of outside your sphere of, of knowledge, mm -hmm. outside of your domain, and be aggressive with that and accept the risk of failure mm -hmm. by, you know, straying beyond what you've been trained to do. Mm -hmm. But in very well-established companies, that's very hard. Mm -hmm. It's much easier in a fast-growing startup or a startup. Mm -hmm. But it's really about finding the boss who is willing to take a chance on you. Mm -hmm. And then after Rome, you worked for a while at 3Com. 3Com. Yeah. What, what did your role look like there? Well, there I joined as head of sales, marketing, and service, and the company was about a $300 million company. It was started by the, the inventor of Ethernet. And this was at the beginning of the networking industry, when at the time, most computers were not connected. The PC was just about to be invented. The notion that you'd have a computing device on a desk was still quite foreign. And it was the beginning of what was to be the internet. So again, dumb luck. It was exactly the right time to get involved in the networking industry. 
And 3Com had a, a good position in part of that industry, but we had a lot of strategic issues, which I didn't understand when I joined the company. And there were uh, there was some management turmoil. There was kind of a palace coup that I was involved in where the CEO whom, who had hired me kind of got pushed out and a group of three of us took over bigger, took on bigger roles in the company. And after a few fumbles and decisions and pivots, you know, we grew from being a $300 million company to about a $6 billion company. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we didn't make all of our numbers each of the years. We made a bunch of mistakes, but eventually we caught our stride. Um, we got very good at doing acquisitions that we folded into our product set. We figured out how to have an effective sales force. We built a really good indirect channel in this business, which no one else had done yet. Mm -hmm. And after about five years of running basically f the field, field operations and, and service and marketing, I wanted to do something else. So I convinced my boss to give me a job in product development. Mm -hmm. Again, I'm not engineer. Mm -hmm. um, I was very good at being critical of the people in product development, but I'd never done it myself. Mm -hmm. So he said, fine. And I took over a big chunk of the, the product groups at 3Com and we did more acquisitions. And I learned how to do that. And, and that was a huge amount of fun because I was scared every day. I was working with all these PhD scientists, engineers, talking to customers who are very technical. And um, I had to learn it. And, and and it was a wonderful experience. And then we reorganized again, and and um, I took on part of what I used to have in sales and service as well. So it was really um, a very formative experience. And also, I got a lot of exposure to Wall Street because I got to represent the co company to investors and analysts a lot in the last uh, five or six years. Mm -hmm. So again, it was a um, function of a relatively non-traditional CEO taking a chance mm -hmm. with it was the, the, my, my boss was a brilliant engineer Eric Benamou, um asked me to run in you know effectively engineering and products so the engineer asked the non-engineer to run engineering so <laughs> but it worked out fine uh-huh and then um, for a couple years after that you served as the CEO in Formix and I know you tell the the story in your your business classes but I guess what um, what was just the general gist of why you joined and what you were um, what you were tasked to do and then what ended up happening? Well, any of my students who have uh, taken well, any of my students have, have heard the story, but I left Rome, I, I left 3Com because I felt I was ready to run a company and we had done an acquisition that I didn't think made a lot of sense. It was just a good time for me to leave and I thought I was totally ready for the big leagues. And Informix was approaching to be approaching to be a billion-dollar database management company that had some well-established operational problems, and they had a very sales-oriented CEO, and they wanted somebody who could run things better, and that was my reputation. So I, I took that job, and, and you know from the story, on the third day, I found out there was accounting fraud committed in part by my predecessor, and we went through a couple of years of very trying times when the company went through several near-death experiences. Mm -hmm. Some people ended up going to jail, um, all kinds of issues. Mm -hmm. um, but eventually, the company stabilized, and um, after I left, was sold to IBM. 
And it, that turned out to be a very formative experience for me. One, it wasn't pleasant. And what I discerned from my experience there, um, I, th I think some relatively different observations about why and how generally good people end up doing bad things when they never intend to do bad things in, in business. And it's not what's in the movies and and in you know popular culture that it's all about greedy capitalists. It's it's more about, in my mind, yes, there is greed in some cases, but more dangerous are issues of hubris and pride and issues of, of weak character. Yeah. Um, this is what allows people who never intended to do bad things to get involved in bad things. Mm -hmm. So watching that and learning from it, uh, you know, gave me a, a very different perspective. I, I, it was, it was not a perfect experience in terms of my performance. I'm sure I made mistakes. I didn't understand the business, even though I thought I should be able to understand it. It was something I, I knew nothing about really when I joined. I was a, a data networking person, not an enterprise software person. You know, I learned fast, but probably did not know enough going in and spent most of the time trying to uh, prevent disaster as opposed mm -hmm. to moving the company forward. Mm -hmm. So after that, um, I decided I was tired uh, kind of emotionally. I wanted to do something different for a while. And my family had made immense sacrifices with the amount of time I spent working and traveling. And Informix probably traveled 70% of the time. Uh, I just was never home and always stressed out and new problems every day and always in the press. And it just, it, it was time to try something different. So I decided to not have a day job for a while. And I got reconnected with Santa Clara and heard that they were starting this course that they wanted, where they wanted business practitioners to teach basically an intro to business class that front-ended the undergraduate business curriculum. And I thought that'd be fun and perfect. For what you know, for me to do something next, and um, at the same time, I'd started joining boards of directors of companies, mm -hmm. uh, and decided I would spend the next phase of my life teaching and being on boards and getting involved with some startups and doing a little investing on my own. Mm -hmm. What does the the role of being on a board entail? Like, what does that look like if you're on the board of a company? Well, from a legal standpoint, you are there as the representative of the shareholders, the owners of the company. So your job is to represent their interests, to look out for their interests. And sometimes those interests are different from the management of the company. Mm -hmm. So it involves um, very basically the board is in charge of hiring the management, primarily the CEO is in charge of making sure the numbers are accurate according to the law, that the company f complies with the laws, that the company's strategy makes sense, again, on behalf of the shareholders. Mm -hmm. So it's called uh, governance as opposed to management. Mm -hmm. And it's different in terms of what you do all day as a director. If it's a big public company, there's a lot of uh, legal stuff and legal requirements and filings with the SEC that are a big part of the job and working with external auditors. If it's a smaller company or venture funded company, it's more about working with the entrepreneur and on the strategy and business development. Mm -hmm. um, but I find that work um, very interesting. And it's a way for me 
to keep mentally engaged, to stay relevant, uh, to keep up to date with technology. And so I've been involved, I think I've been on, currently I'm on five boards, mm -hmm. two public, three private, and in total, including those, I've been on 25 boards, which mm -hmm. range mm -hmm. in size from 14, 15 billion dollar company like Sun Microsystems, all the way to companies that don't have any revenue yet. Hmm. Looking at the next uh, 10 years, are there any um, new trends or innovations that you think are going to change the way uh, we live our lives? Sure. And there have been incredible ones in the last 10, 20, 50 years, and much of it has come from right here in Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things I cover in my course is I have this long list of inventions that have happened in Silicon Valley that have changed the world, and ranging from the microprocessor to um, current semiconductor technology and, and data networking, all the things, all the stuff that makes the internet work mm -hmm. and make it work fast and um, things that make the World Wide Web possible. All of that happened here. And it's not stopping. There is, uh, it, it changes over time in Silicon Valley. It used to be literally about Silicon. And, and by the way, it still is. Most people don't pay attention to it, but uh, Moore's Law and all this, uh, all the advancements in Silicon made everything else possible. Mm -hmm by dramatically reducing the cost of computing and dramatically reducing the cost of storage and the cost of data networking so that the cloud can exist. We can have massively powerful devices in our pockets that can communicate with anything else anywhere in the world at almost the speed of light. All of that has enabled things like Facebook and things like Google and things that haven't been invented yet that we, we don't know. I'm very intrigued by uh, big data, artificial intelligence, not so much that I want the world being run by robots uh, who will eventually take over and destroy all humanity. Mm -hmm. But I think AI is a way to augment and amplify you know, human intelligence and power, mm -hmm. the same way other kinds of machines have done in the past. Mm -hmm. And technology is to the point now where it's so cost-effective, it's, it's now possible to do things in AI that we're not possible before you need the biggest computer in the world to do some of the things that are that are happening now and that's going to change medicine it's going to change mm -hmm. business it's going to change media mm -hmm. it's going to change gaming entertainment how we run our houses how we manage energy but so many things can happen from it hmm. and how do you make the decision to to join a board like what what criteria do you look for i guess in a company if they asked you to be on the board so first of all, it has to be something or a situation where I believe I can add value. I want to be an active participant. I take the job very seriously. I'm not interested in any honorary positions. Mm -hmm. Some companies hire trophy directors because mm -hmm. it looks good on the masthead, politicians and generals and sometimes movie stars. I'm not a trophy director. Uh, I'm there to do real work, you know, based on my experience. So I want to be sure that there's a place for that and that that's what's wanted. I care about the kind of business it is. I don't want to spend time um, in companies that don't matter. I'm not sure I'd want to be on the board of a gaming company. 
my gaming is fine. I don't, if people want to participate in that, that's fine. But as a way for me to spend my time mm -hmm. to help people kill more angry ducks or crush candy or any of that stuff, um, I'm not that interested in myself. Mm -hmm. So I like, like it to be something that matters. I, I, I like, I'm attracted to things that are on the cutting edge of something, uh, something that I barely understand and want to understand more of. Very important. I like to be with really good, smart people. I never, ever want to be the smartest person in the room. I always want to be in a place where I can learn from people and be exposed to things I've not been exposed to before. I want to be sure the people I'm with on the board, both the other directors and the managers and the executives uh, have integrity. Life's too short uh, to be involved with people that I don't want my picture taken with. Mm -hmm. It's not about the money. It's really about doing the job right and getting the experience. Mm -hmm. And what would you say is one of the best investments you've made um, in your life, whether that's of time or energy or money or something else? I thought about that a little bit. I, I don't really have a long list of spectacular money investments I've made. I, you know, should have put money in Google. I should have put money in Facebook. I should have done, I, you know, I, once I got to a point of personal flexibility, I, I'm sort of liberated from having to worry about needing to make the next big bet myself. You know, I have enough to do what, you know, what I want to do with the rest of my life. Some more important investments, I think one would be the investment in having a family mm -hmm. and the the joy and the benefit and the learning and the experiences you get associated with that. Mm -hmm. The for most of my adult life, I've invested in keeping myself physically healthy. I was never a very good athlete and wasn't in very good shape. But I started running, you know, forty some years ago, and I became a marathoner. And it was just a way for me to test myself. Um, the only thing I'm good at athletically is endurance mm -hmm. and sort of mind over matter. And that's what I learned in long distance running. I can't do that anymore, but um, and I kind of morphed into doing some, you know, some, I morphed into doing some mountain climbing and I morphed into doing hard hiking, but I think it's important to, to try to stay physically relevant mm -hmm. as well. Um, I invest a lot in, in travel and adventure, going mm -hmm. to places in the world that are hard to get to, places that most people can't get to, to have experiences that most people can't have. Mm -hmm. um, it's just pure pleasure mm -hmm. doing it, but I just find it very, very exciting and a very legitimate way to, to save money. I mean, to, to spend money, not to mm -hmm. save money. Mm -hmm. What's your favorite uh, travel experience that you've had or your favorite place that you've been? Uh, the, uh, several. Uh, I've been very exciting. I had the opportunity 17 years ago to climb the tallest mountain in Antarctica, mm. something I was barely qualified to do, but with the help of a very good guide and team, had an incredible adventure and got to the top of this mountain that at the time only 300 other people had gotten to. Many more have climbed it now, mm -hmm. but it was not technically complex, but physically and logistically very complex. Mm -hmm. um, I've gone on many uh, treks in Africa, uh, trekking, looking at the gorillas, wildlife safaris, went on a very long trek in Tajikistan um, near the Afghan border. That was probably stupid, but very interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, gone on very, did a the tour to Mont Blanc, 100-mile 100, 100 hike around Mont Blanc. Mm -hmm 
couple of years ago, hiked in the Pyrenees in France and Spain. Last uh, the summer, went on a expedition cruise uh, above the Arctic Circle. Mm-hmm. Um, got to the 80th parallel. So I like doing stuff like mm-hmm. that um, as a way to just have very interesting experiences. Mm-hmm. And then, what would you say up to this point in your life that you're most proud of? Uh, You know, I feel more lucky than proud, and I, I'm reluctant to say, yeah, because I did this, I have that, or I caused this wonderful thing to happen. Um, it, it really is more about stumbling into Silicon Valley in 1977, and maybe having the guts to change jobs multiple times mm-hmm. and go into things I didn't understand. Mm-hmm and take advantage of bosses that were willing to take chances on me. Mm-hmm. So that's perhaps what I'm most proud of. Mm-hmm. But it's it's not, hey, I made this much money or this company did that. I mean, I, I was always involved in a group of people, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm very reluctant to say I'm the cause of this success. It's never that, I think, mm-hmm. in most ventures. It's always a bunch of people. And I'm also, I also participate in a lot of mistakes as well. Mm-hmm. So... Um, the, the way I look at it is I was lucky. I made some some good choices. I got exposed to some people who were extraordinary, both in terms of what I could learn from them and how they were willing to help me and take chances with me. And I was lucky enough to you know, invest in having a family and the trials and tribulations of that mm-hmm. and getting the resulting joy from it. And hopefully I'm reason I like to teach at Santa Clara is for better or worse, to share my experiences and have some impact on students. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to know how that works out. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't, you can't know that the last day of class or when you read the evaluations. The real test is what happens in the student's life, you know, the next quarter, the next year, the first job, the second job, the third job. That's when mm-hmm. you find out, or that's when the impact of being a good teacher really happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, awesome. Well, I'd love to wrap up with a couple shorter questions. Okay. Um, is there any book that you recommend that um, every college student should read? I think it's unfortunate that most college students today don't get exposed to other ways of thinking. As, as you may know, I'm very much a uh, free market, more libertarian type. I, I really value personal liberty. I'm perplexed that students who purport to be liberal do not value liberty very much. Mm-hmm. So I think Milton Friedman, Milton and his wife Rose's book, Free to Choose, is a great book. Mm-hmm. Thomas Sowell's book, In Pursuit of Cosmic Justice, are very good books to think about, uh, get you thinking about you know, how the world ought to, ought to operate. Mm-hmm. If you could send a message to everyone in the United States, what would you want to say? I would say we should pay more attention to valuing freedom. And that is truly being liberal, to let other people do what they want, but to not fall into the trap of wanting to live like domesticated animals, where we trade security for ambition and upside and potential 
that we make it hard for people to take chances. That's really what moves societies and civilizations ball forward, is the fact that some people are willing to take chances mm-hmm. and willing to trade off security for making the world a different place. Mm-hmm. So I wish more people in this country and really around the world would think about that and not optimize for risk reduction. Mm-hmm. And finally, what does an ideal Saturday look like for you? Get up, go for a run, play golf, come back, fall asleep in front of the TV for a couple hours, then go have a nice dinner with my wife and friends. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for doing this interview. Thank you. Enjoy it. Thank you so much for listening to the show today. You can subscribe to Voices of Santa Clara on the iTunes podcast app. You can visit VoicesOfSantaClara.com for interview transcripts, and you can like the Facebook page. Special thanks to Miles Elliott for the music. Thank you for listening, and have a nice day. 